listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R. Hi, you're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week, the 15th to the 18th of April. It's a short one because it's Easter time. It is. Hurrah. And uh, this week, though, we had lots of good things. Geraldine talked to, uh, to us about uh, that time that just last weekend which she saved a bin from setting on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The bin fire. Bin fire. <laughs> and uh, we were joined by Leif Cox, who came to speak about his work with orangutans and the orangutan project in particular. Yes, and Michelle Bennett, our regular book reviewer, came in to talk about Judith Brett's book From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting. And then Sarah told us about her adventures trying to fit in with the cool surfers. Cowbunga. Uh, also, we had a chat, because it is Easter, we had a chat about Easter celebrations and the perfectly normal upbringing that we had. And Barabbas. Barabbas. Yeah. Uh, and also, Ricky Lee came in to talk to us about Basking sharks. What a time. Good one, dickhead. <laughs> Independent groove to make you move. Three, triple R. I was a girl guide growing up. Remember? Sure were. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so part of that means that um, you learn how to deal with various situations and, um, you know, a bit of a, sometimes you're a bit of a MacGyver, you know? Yes. Oh. That's right. We, we were talking about this couple of weeks ago mm. and we learned the song about the pixie or whatever it is oh yeah the when you did brownies what was the song oh something about um when you when you first become a brownie and you've got to do the um i looked in the mirror and oh twisted me and turned me and show me the elf oh that's right i looked in the mirror and there saw myself that's so creepy <laughs> i just got tingles down my spine mm. It's probably the way I said it. Yeah. <laughs> Bit of a whisper. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, but you learn many um, practical things in, in Girl Guides. Um, I learned how to cook pikelets on a Milo tin with oh. using a candle. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it's possible. Get an old oh. Milo tin and punch some holes on the side, let the oxygen in, and you put it over a candle, and that's enough to heat up the top of it and put a bit of pikelet mixture on there. Really? Yeah. Where do you get the pikelet mixture from? You make yeah. it. Oh. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> then I was also thinking, God, yeah. I wish I had a pikelet. And I same with jam. Just pikelet, yeah. But, okay, that's handy. But also, like, when are you ever stranded in the bush with pikelet mixture and a Milo tin and a candle? And oh. why would you think that pikelets were the first yeah, thing but if that you, you would if want to It's cook? more if you're at home and there's ah. the electricity's gone out and you want a midnight snack. Ah, oh, I Hello. see. That's we should bring a Milo tin into the studio and you can make us all pikelets one that. day. Let's For do sure. it. No <laughs> What could go wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so last night I uh, got to use my girl guide skills. Oh. Uh, I was Is this like that time that you negotiated with the 7-Eleven guy, like last week? No. <laughs> No. And you drunkenly tried to help the <laughs> yeah. man that worked at Seven Eleven. No, it was <laughs> or better than that. Yeah, it was better okay. than that because I, this this time I was uh, did not have four wines. I just had one wine, and I was just it was after my show, and I was waiting um, for the tram, 
as I was at the tram stop, and all of a sudden there, um, there was three women there, and they I could just hear them go, "Did you have any water? Does anyone have any water?" Um, and I looked up, and they were like, "Excuse me, do you have any water? The bin's on fire." Oh. Right? oh. Yeah. So there was a fire in the bin, and you got out your Milo tin. Yes. <laughs> no, not quite. They one of them had like a little bit of water left in her her drink bottle, so she poured that in, but it wasn't wasn't enough, <sighs> right? And so no one else had any water, and I was like. Well, to put out a fire, you just need to starve it of oxygen. Right, yes. Yes, good thinking. So I just got my backpack <clears throat> and put it over the bin, like over the top of the bin to, to you know, stop the Were air you worried your backpack had set on fire? Well, you'd think I would be. Um, and I... <laughs> well, maybe not. <laughs> I absolutely should have been. Oh, my God! Because I kind of held it over there for a bit <clears throat> and then... <laughs> And then it was like, oh, just see how that's going, and then lift it up. And then, yes, my backpack was on fire. Oh, my God, are yeah. you serious? Yes. I set my oh. bag on fire. And then it was... <laughs> this wasn't what they taught you in Girl Guides. No, I can't no. Deal with this. Because it had the, the holes down the side, so it just kind of just made the fire bigger. And oh, my God. Set- it just was curb your enthusiasm, <laughs> and it cut to a shot of the guy in 7-Eleven looking at you, shaking his head. I oh, know. It would have been across the road. It was across the road from the oh 7-Eleven. So, anyway, I set my back. It's fine. Like, I managed... The, the important stuff I'd managed to get out of it. Like, I just... Like, I had my laptop in there, so... Also, why, why, would, you, so why would you sacrifice your bag for a bin fire? I didn't think it was going to set on fire. fire. I just... I just didn't... I didn't know that it was going to oh set God. it on fire. I just thought it was just... I'd, I'd starve it of oxygen, put the fire out. Everyone would be, oh, wow, oh, that's a so much easier way. So you tried to be a hero. Yes. Turned yes, out to I be did. a zero. Don't try and put out bin fires ever. Can I also, can I just say, though? Your backpack didn't set on fire, did my it? My backpack didn't set on fire. I knew you were lying. I absolutely put out the fire. No did problem. You? Yeah. I, I put my bag over the top of the bin. It starved of oxygen and the fire went out. Does your bag all smell of smoke, though? And bin smoke? Oh, I don't know. Do you want to smell it? No. <laughs> no, I don't think Was so. Was anyone around? Yeah, yeah. The to three women. The bin fire. Yeah, the three women that were there that were trying to, um, you know, put the fire out in the first place with their little bit of water. Yeah. And then one of them said, she was like, oh, you can put this in, in your next comedy routine. I was like, oh, no, thank you. And I said, can you please let everyone know that my girl guide training came in very handy tonight and that I saved the day with this bin fire. Did you find out who started the fire? No, I think someone just put out a cigarette in there and it just caught... On some stuff It was a very tiny fire I think it was almost put out Before I put my bag over it But What a fun story Yes Well I I nearly had a chance To prove myself a hero When I was flying up to Sydney Oh yes Yeah Because since I've traded up From the budget airlines Mm -hmm. To these better class Of airlines Yeah On advice from various people At AAA Who told me I was doing it All the wrong way And I should be Trying to get Um more points and also told me this particular airline was the safest one even though i now know it's trying to buy those death airlines from overseas well not anymore but yeah anyway so i'm doing that but but one of the things that this this i'm trying not to to name the brands or the the companies or whatever but one of the things it does is because it's got more like wi-fi on board or some of them even have proper wi-fi on board Mm -hmm. you can track the progress of the plane on yeah. your app. Yes. Which you can't do on any of those budget ones. Mm. So I've taken to do... And do you love doing that? You must love seeing I do, where... I do, yeah. I do love doing that. And also you can tell how... It tells you all the stats on the plane, like how high it is and how Does fast... Does it not worry you that you've got... Did that just be another thing for me to worry about? 
No, because then I can tell whether we've reached the proper height and I can keep track oh. of whether the pilot is going too high or too low. Right. I just feel like it's too you, much. What's the proper height? Oh, you just, it matches. Well, that goes to 34,000 feet and then it goes exactly 34,000 feet for the rest of the time. Okay. You see? But also That's you just can... what the yap tells you. <laughs> yeah, it does. I know, it's because the baby's just made for nervous flyers. <laughs> but also one of the things it does is it shows the path of the plane mm. and they keep diverting it. So, look, what happens is, like, they draw this straight line between mm-hmm. Melbourne and Sydney or yep. Sydney and Melbourne if you go there. And most of the time it just goes completely straight. Mm-hmm. But then every now and then you'll be looking at it and you'll see that they've gone a different way. Like, they've turned around. Do you know around. what that is? It's when you come in close to Sydney and then it does a bit of a loop around to come back oh, it's, around. It's the worst thing because you can it's, see, like... You're coming from the wrong direction, You see, like, mate. you're 15 <laughs> kilometres away. Yeah. And you think, okay, because you're watching to see as the kilometres go down. Mm. Like, and, and, it, and then all of a sudden it goes up to 16 kilometres, 17 kilometres, 20 kilometres. Yeah, because you're going further away. Why? You've got to watch your TV, Jeff. Watch some TV. <laughs> Anyway, For God's sake. I was nearly at the point of contacting one of the stewardess and say, look, I think we're going the wrong way. We're supposed to go to Sydney. We've made a turn to the left and we were heading, we got as way as 25 kilometres away when we got as close to 12 kilometres away. Do you know what it is though? It's Sydney's a very busy airport and there's a lot I of planes coming in. traffic control talking. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, so you want to just crash into another plane landing at the same time? I just want to go straight time. there and I think it's very It co- doesn't make any sense. You're, you have the most nonsensical fear of flying. <laughs> None of it makes sense. No. Bits of it add up, bits of it don't add up. Anyway, did I was trying to talk to the person next to me about it, but... Um, what did they, they do? Didn't care. <laughs> they weren't interested. Too busy watching a bit of telly. Triple R. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R. Leif Cox is a conservationist, the founder of the Orangutan Project and the author of several books, including Orangutans, My Cousins, My Friends and the forthcoming Finding Our Humanity. He's speaking at an event this Thursday at Fitzroy Town Hall. Right now, however, he's joining us here on Breakfasters. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Now, you started your career working with orangutans in the Perth Zoo, Mm -hmm. but I've heard you say that you then discovered that orangutans are not animals, but people in captivity. Mm -hmm. What did you mean by that? Um, More specifically, persons. Persons. Yeah. My my proposition is you don't necessarily have to be a human to be a person. And yes, as personhood has developed over periods, you know, for example, a couple hundred years ago, if you were black, you may not be a person, didn't have the right to vote. And, of course, women didn't have the right to vote in America the 1920s. And so we have this expansion of personhood as we have um, morally developed. And I'm suggesting that um, the second most intelligent being on the planet, the orangutans that share our world, um, is also a person and deserves the same rights for freedom um, from pain and suffering and, of course, to survive. Was, sorry, just quickly. Was there anything particular about working with the orangutans at the zoo that made you... Like, what was it about them mm-hmm. that made you think more of them? Mm-hmm. I guess? Well, well, first of all, they're, they're a person, and as such, they deserve the, the rights and respect and freedom, and, of course, eventually to understand they don't belong in the zoo, just as we don't belong in jails or refugee camps, mm. as an example. But the other great things about orangutans is... In some way, they, they represent a more noble form of personhood than, than we do, from coming from our very aggressive chimpanzee-like ancestor. 
Um, I'll give you one example. You know, we've probably killed over one million orangutans the most horrific way. Macheted dev shot their eyes out and, and killed them as we destroyed their um, rainforest for unsustainable forms of agriculture such as palm oil. Mm. But although they're seven times stronger than a human being and the males have a canine the same size of a tiger, not one time has the orangutan ever killed a human being in any situation, zoo, sanctuary or in the wild. And of course, getting to know him and living with him myself for so many years, I realised their, um, their friendship and the, um, the relationship you can have in a, with orangutan is, can be actually far more deeper and meaningful than you can with a human because we as social beings um, often our relationships are contractual you know mm. <laughs> we love you we're friend but we we want something from you mm. um, in order to, for us to continue that relationship where the orangutans being far more independent uh, emotionally um, is when you become thrown with orangutans it's, it's far more deep and meaningful relationship than perhaps we mostly experience among our human brethren would you extend that argument about personhood to other species, to other animals? I mean, some mm-hmm. animal liberationists might make the same claim for mm-hmm. whales, dogs, mm-hmm. other, or, or indeed other species of primates. Sure, that's, that's a you know excellent point. Um, my proposition to you is that is that um, all conscious beings have the capacity to suffer. You know, that when when a being becomes aware of its own existence. And, and therefore, the, the killing um, and eating, for God's sake, of other conscious beings is 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 a it's a dreadful thing to do. Um, however, when you become a person, or you you develop the sense of um, individual identity by um, um, over time, the, the 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 mind as it develops puts in a continuity of thoughts between past and present, and forms this concept of a person. And therefore has anxieties of the past, you know, and concerns of the future. And this actually amplifies the suffering that a person can experience over other living beings. So, for example, you would probably know most of your suffering is mental. I can you go to your nice place in Melbourne, see on a couch, big screen TV, and you say, oh, miserable life, I'm miserable. And you go, well, why? Anxiety of the past, concerns about the future. Even though your current situation is probably pretty damn good. And and so and therefore I I'm not dismissing the the need to have compassion for all living beings, um, but just highlighting when we're dealing with persons, there's an added urgency on to extend our humanity towards them. What is the current situation for uh, for orangutans worldwide? Mm. For those mm. that don't know, um, they're going extinct. They're critically endangered. All three species, um, which basically means an imminent threat of extinction. And we're losing thousands a year of being killed as agricultural pests as the forest disappears. So we really have the next, um, you know, 20 years or so, and certainly critically in the next five years to turn it around. Otherwise, we won't get the orangutans as well as all the species that share their rainforest home through the extinction crisis to hopefully a, a better world into the future. So much work has been done um, raising people's attention to mm-hmm. palm oil. Is has, has those cam- campaigns been successful in any way in, in ceasing um, the destruction of their habitat? Mm. No, and it's not likely to because um, if you concentrate on one product, 
the rainforest itself is worth millions in trees alone. So, and then if you destroy and get the millions from the tree, you'll plant whatever crop is the most profitable at the time. Mm. It happens to be palm oil. Next week it could be rubber. It could be sugar palm. You know, and, and therefore, if you concentrate on one product, you're not going to. You're not really addressing the real driver. The real driver is greed and unsustainable forms of destruction of the environment for short-term gain by a greedy few. And similarly, if you attack a particular company, there's hundreds of other companies willing to you know, fill the breach and destroy the environment. And 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 so it's it's, it's like everything. Indiscriminate charity causes more problems than well than it creates. And so awareness of palm oil and therefore the issue of rank tank. Um, conservation is critically important but the um how we address the outcomes must be thought out a lot more carefully okay some people might say that we can still um cherish and want to protect creatures like orangutans without necessarily regarding them as persons in the way that you Mm -hmm. put forward i mean wouldn't one of the arguments be that it's very difficult for an orangutan to express the same sort of agency that a human being does so when you are speaking on behalf of an orangutan because Mm -hmm. an orangutan cannot speak Mm -hmm. on its own half and doesn't that seem in some ways quite an important distinction sure sure so um children not so good don't worry about them um disabled people um what's what's the outcome there and, and, and so you, as we break down those notions of, of artificial separation between us and others, um, when, when we look into it more deeply, those barriers are, are seen to, put, to be what they are as artificial. And of course, an orangutan can communicate. They communicate by body language. And, and we don't know their language. And if you teach American Sign Language, which isn't their natural form of language, they can learn up to 2,000 words to have a conversation with you about the future. And, and, and so it, it's certainly possible if we listen. Um, however, um, we don't. Are you able to tell, um, tell us a little bit more about orangutans as opposed to, say, um, other apes and chimps? You mm-hmm. know, I mean, some people might not have that understanding as why, why an orangutan is different to, say, mm-hmm. a chimpanzee or a bonobo. What is it that kind of defines mm-hmm. them as different to you? Sure, sure. Maybe I just go through the great apes. You know, we've got the gorillas, <laughs> which I call the sports scholarships of the great ape world. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're big, beautiful, but pretty dumb, you know. <laughs> the jocks. <laughs> yeah, exactly, the jocks. You know, they just eat lots of plants and they don't have to be too bright, but, hey, you don't have to, you know because you're a 300-pound gorilla. Yeah. Um, the next one is the is bonobos, which is your make love, not war, you know. And yes. so they, they deal with any situation, good or bad, through sex, you know. So, you know, um, we're feeling stressed, let's have some sex, you know. Right. If you're, ah, you know, we're feeling happy, let's have some sex. And they don't worry about what sex they're having the sex with. It's just sex every time, so. Um, so and um, chimpanzees, you know, they're warlike ancestors, you know. They have war, you know, and they like us, they're capable of so much compassion, um, but they can also look at another person and want to destroy that person, tear your face and genitals off, you know, just as humans do in, in warfare. And unfortunately, they are our, our closest relatives. The most intelligent one is actually the orangutan, the most thoughtful one. And they have this, what we know, is the prefrontal cortex, which is very well developed in them. And people often look at orangutan and think it's not doing anything. But what it's doing is running in its prefrontal cortex, the scenarios. 
and it keeps running the scenarios until it gets the right one and acts once where the chimpanzee is, you know, uh, 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 you know, just keeps on trial and error. Mm. Um, so, and we have this very warped sense of intelligence, as we know, even IQ tests are very culturally biased amongst human beings. And also, we, when we look at, let's say, orangutans, their temporal spatial map is far beyond us far beyond us. So they're actually in their level of intelligence, they're far more intelligent than, than we are. So the quick analogy is if you give a gorilla a screwdriver, he'll scratch himself with it. I won't tell you what Bonobo's going to do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this is too... Chimpanzee will throw it at another chimpanzee, but a gorilla will escape. I'm oh, sorry, an orangutan will escape. Oh. You know, it's, um, they, they're just kind of that smart you know they'll figure mm. it out and, and um, use it for what it's meant to be useful do you think we'll ever be able to communicate with them um, with the kind of complexities we have conversations with other with human beings mm-hmm. um no and in some some uh, some of the brain science is actually um saying that we've actually got a bit dumber oh. um because um as I talked about the orangutan spatial temporal memory, you know, and, and some of their cognitive abilities are actually far greater than ours. And we've sacrificed some of those memories in order to develop our speech and, and communication and, and, and voice. So it's like a trade-off, if, if that makes sense. And so for an orangutan to survive, it can't use the same trade-off. Um, and, and But that doesn't mean they're not intelligent and, you know, if they just don't have the same um, capacities in the same area. All right, you're speaking this Thursday at Fitzroy Town Hall. Um, you're launching your book, Finding Our Humanity, and this is an event on behalf of the Orangutan Project. What's mm-hmm. the Orangutan Project? The Orangutan Project is a non-partisan organisation dedicated to um, saving orangutans in the wild and um, is now probably the largest um, organisation of such. And, you know, we're putting, well, literally millions of dollars um, and you know, a concerted effort to save orangutans as individuals, but most importantly, save complete viable ecosystems that orangutan can, orangutans' populations can survive in viable numbers. And we only have a few years to do that. Okay, so anyone can come along on Thursday? Yeah, everyone's welcome, but please go to Everbright and book your tickets or the Orangutan Project website, orangutan.com the AU and yeah we'd love to see you there we've got um, fantastic musicians and fantastic vegan food from the walking amazing yeah. oh, nice. <laughs> that's a, this Thursday night at Fitzroy Town Hall will also be the launch of Finding Our Humanity we've been talking to its author and the founder of the Orangutan Project Leif Cox thanks so much for coming in you're very much welcome thank you 3 R on radio web and digital 102.7 That's right. As foreshadowed, it's time for the winning sounds of Michelle Bennett. <laughs> winning sounds. <laughs> Do her um, book review here in Breakfast. How you going, Michelle? Very well, thank you. Somebody else who wants to be winning on uh, Saturday the 18th of May is Scott Morrison, ah. who finally um, dragged himself off to uh, call the election pretty much at the last possible time for him to do it. Um, So perfect timing to review Judith Brett's new book, From uh, Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting. 
Um, and this book is a, it's really a celebration about how good we are at elections in Australia and at the heart of it is compulsory voting. We know from um, voluntary voting systems like in the US that poor and marginalised people are the least likely to vote but with compulsory voting no political party can afford to ignore um, a substantial group of voters. No strong opposition case. Well, this is kind of according to Judith Brett. She believes that no strong opposition case has ever really been articulated um, against compulsory voting. But objections are mostly along the sort of libertarian um, view, preserving the freedom of citizens not to vote. Um, the most often used argument for compulsory voting is that for Parliament to represent the people, they should be elected by the majority of the electives, not just the majority of those who turn up to vote. And when compulsory voting was introduced in Australia, it was in 1924, the turnout at the next federal election was 91.39%, an increase of more than 32% on the previous election. Um, and compulsory voting is just one way that Australia has led the world with our electoral system. The secret ballot, um, while already existing in a few countries, was perfected by Australia with more efficient ways um, to roll out a secret vote. We even um, invented the voting booths. Oh, so, really? Yeah, because before it was like they had to have like a single room and it just took too long to get people in and that. So they, it, you know, someone came up with the idea of just putting partitions in a room <laughs> and getting box. Yeah. a box. Well, they used to be made of wood. Remember when we um, talked to Claire Wright, it was that reminder there was once upon a time a period when Australia was actually innovative and yeah. and I guess it's the time you're talking about, isn't uh, it? And they put a lot of trust in kind of government and... Um, you know, and that system became known around the world as the Australian ballot, the way that we voted in secret, and it spread through, you know, Europe and the US. Um, before secret voting, voting was um, literally done in public with men, because women didn't have the vote mm -hmm. at that stage, usually going to a pub, filling in a form and declaring out loud who they voted for. Oh, wow. Um, and it was, like, rife with bribery and, and violence when someone was, you know, people paid people to vote for them, but then if they said that they'd voted for a different person like you know there were riots oh. and um voters were given drinks as bribery and stuff like it kind of sounds not too bad really <laughs> yeah. um but you know there were riots and people were killed like at election times you know where, when you know drunk kind of hoons mm. were in the street and stuff um women fought for and won the vote in south australia in 1894 um the sorry were they fighting for the vote or were they fighting for some free beer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, that, yeah, would have been a decent fight, I reckon. Um, the, and South Australia was second in the world after New Zealand. New Zealand gave women um, the right to vote in 1893. It wasn't easily won, of course, and on the second day of debate, Conservatives introduced an amendment that not only um, women would be able to vote, they would be able to stand as candidates. And the Conservatives thought that that was just such an outrageous amendment that it would not get through. But it did, um, and so not only Sucked did women. <laughs> so not only did they get the right to vote, they could also, um, you know, they had sort of full electoral equality in South Australia. Um, but when the Franchise Act of 1902 rolled out the vote to women um, Australia-wide, it was also a really shameful and cruel step back for Aboriginal people by blatantly racist um, politicians. And it, it would be worth every Australian reading the chapter on this. 
Um, and obviously today so many racist policies that discriminate against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, remain, but it's like really shocking that it wasn't until 1983 and Bob Hawke that Aboriginal people became subject to exactly the same voting laws as other Australians in that um, it was compulsory to be enrolled and it was, you know, you had to vote. Um, over the years, the Liberal Party has tried to repeal compulsory voting and voter suppression was attempted in lots of different ways by the Howard government. Um, and the fir first thing that he did was... Um try and follow the example of some American states and strip the vote from all prisoners. And that happened in 2006. Did you know that? Yeah, well it, well, it was a law that was largely overturned by the High Court the following year um, when it was tested by this incredible Indigenous woman, Vicky Roach, who was serving a sentence for burglary. And so the High Court found that they couldn't strip the right from um, all prisoners to vote. Mm. Um, and we've spoken before about the unnecessary postal survey on marriage equality. But one of the nice things that it did, apart from you know, actual yes. <laughs> marriage equality, was to add nearly 100,000 new voters to the electoral roll, most aged between 18 to 24. Um, so all those young progressive voters who enrolled so they could vote in the postal um, survey are now on the roll for this election. Um, and we also love our election days in Australia and it was in the 1980s with the production of large portable gas barbecues <laughs> that, that the sausage sizzle became a feature. You kind of feel like it just would have always been a feature yeah. but barbecue, you couldn't move barbecues, you know, barbecues oh, used to be made true. from brick in yeah, your backyard and stuff so, um, you know, so in, in the book it even talks about the production of uh, gas barbecues. Um, so you need to enrol to update your details for this federal election by 8pm Thursday 18th of April um, and it's super easy to go and check if you're on the electoral roll and to enrol on the um, AEC website um, and come May 18 make sure you vote below the line and plan where you're going to get your democracy sausage. Yeah. Um, I get that, like, the early Labor movement was very keen on compulsory voting because often employers would make it very difficult for their workers to vote on a particular day. And once it was compulsory, you couldn't do that anymore. And it always has been seen as something that favours the progressive side mm. of politics because, obviously, if you're wealthier, it's easier for you to make election day. I guess I'm not as convinced as Judy Brett seems to be that it's necessarily a progressive... Um, legislation today. I mean, surely, surely part of the argument could be that in Australia today, compulsory voting means that, say, the Labor Party doesn't have to try to motivate it's yeah, well, that's one of the arguments. Mm. That, that, that's one of the arguments that you know um, conservatives would put up is that it doesn't. It makes politicians lazy because everyone just has to vote, so they don't work hard enough to convince people to vote for them. Um, so, and I, I guess it's a valid thing. But at the end of the day, I would far prefer having the whole of Australia have a say who's going to run the country. What what Judith Brett doesn't go into into any full detail is just how bad our system has become with kind of vote preferencing and and how that mm. is completely skewing our political system at the moment she doesn't she mentioned it a little bit with like ricky muir who was the moto enthusiast guy who got in with you know some ridiculous amount of votes actually was a really good mp and had weirdly some good things to contribute in the end particularly on um refugees and children in detention um but 
but yeah, it, I, I kind of would have liked a little bit more of that in this book because the reality is in 2019, we have a system that's really failing uh, our democracy, I think, on, on the kinds of people that can get seats in our parliament. So does she put forward any suggestions for the future or anything like that? No, not really. It's a history. You know, yeah. it really is a history about... And it's not really even a history of political parties. It's a, it's a history about how we vote in this country, not who we vote for, um, it, which is, you know, like every Australian should sort yeah. of know. And, and we have such a unique history because, you know, we were settled by people from the British Isles, much like the US, but our system is so different to theirs. Um, and, and it's... You you know, it's largely because we were convicts and um, and and when the convicts kind of, you know, were given land and everything, they kind of wanted control and they wanted fairness. So, uh, you know, it's it, well, they didn't want it for Indigenous Australians, that's for sure. But, yeah. um, you know, in our kind of voting systems and so on, it's it, it we do have a good history of, of being... Um, you know, being pretty progressive. Does, does she say uh, what's the popularity of compulsory voting, say, in Europe? Do, do many countries there have it? Or there, it there are. It's, we are one of very few countries that have it. It's it's like Switzerland, and um, she does list. I can't remember exactly, sure. but it's a it's a pre, it's a really small amount. So I would have thought it was have it, it? no, and the US doesn't obviously. Um, I mean, what I see, and I get obsessed with US elections as well as Australian elections, is just the um, just the amount of money that ends up getting spent getting people literally out to vote mm. as opposed to even who they're going to vote for. Like, I, you know, that's a system that I would hate to see in Australia. The book is From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting by Judith Brett. It's out through text. It's a very timely review, Michelle Bennett. Yes. With the election coming up, we'll talk to you again very soon. Excellent. Bye-bye. Ah, ah. Ah, Sarah, you um, you're a surfy now. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, hang ten, <laughs> cowabunga, cowabunga. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so you've taken up surfing. You're going down to the beach on weekends and stuff. How are you finding um, being? You, have you been accepted into the um, into the culture of oh, surfing? Into the into the into the <laughs> surfing into the clique? Mm. No. Oh. I, well, well, look. Let's be clear, I'm only just um, getting up on my knees, so I probably don't quite look like I'm surfing at this point in time. You could just say that I'm kneeboarding. Yes. Um, oh, it's all right. Yeah, it's all right. I'm getting there. I haven't had any lessons yet, so getting there. But I don't I, – look, I feel a little bit uncomfortable about trying – I want to be accepted, but yes. I also, because I'm not actually technically surfing yet, I feel a little bit uncomfortable about trying to uh, insert myself into the surfing culture. Yes, I understand. So, but has there been um, any kind of, like, if people pushed you out of the way, so to speak? No, no. Has, look, to be fair, been, everyone's been very polite to me. I think I just mm. feel, you know, I feel like I'm an old person walking into a into a crowd of teenagers going, hey, what's up, daddy-o? Like, <laughs> yes. you know, trying Hello, to get the link going. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I, well, on the what weekend. Have you, what have you said to try and uh, so pass I'll, as a surfer? Well, usually I just stay a, a nice distance from most of the surfers and often they're not around me anyway because I'm on the little waves. But yeah. on the weekend, uh, I was up at Anglesey and we'd um, hide aboard in a couple of, 
Uh, oh, even when I'm hiring the board and the wetsuit, I kind of want to pretend like mm. I am more experienced than I am. Uh. But then you can't because you're hiring one of the beginner boards. But <laughs> I just want to look cool in front of the people in the surf store. I understand. And so when I was in the surf store hiring my uh, wetsuit this weekend, I tried to start a casual conversation about a surfing competition that was on the TV. Oh, yes. And <laughs> was oh, like, how did that go? Oh, I went, I went, oh, his waves look really great. And the guy goes, oh, yeah. And I was like, they're pretty cool. And I just had nothing. To, I just realised I have nothing else to say about the waves. I don't know anything technically about surfing. So but I just said they're pretty cool. Can you maybe um, think of some um, pro surfers that you could talk about? Yeah, all yeah. I know is Drop Kelly Slater. Research, yeah. Maybe that's a good idea. All I know mm. is Kelly Slater, who I don't even know that he surfs anymore. Yeah, he so, does. But And we've had some champion surfers here in Australia, so I should know more about mm. that. Then I went down to the beach and I noticed this girl um, arrived with a really cool yellow surfboard and I'd never seen a surfboard like it and I thought, that's great. She was just there by herself, put on her wetsuit and went out and I said to Andrew, I really like that surfboard, looks great. And he's like, yeah, I noticed it too. You know, just ask her where she got it from. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'll be able to do this. And so when I paddled out, you know, she was kind of on similar waves to me. I don't think she wasn't a beginner, but she was not like a super advanced surfer. Right. Uh, but when I paddled out, she was kind of sitting up on her surfboard and I was lying on the front of mine. In my first attempt to say something to her, Did you I, fall off? I fell off. <laughs> oh. like I, it was so embarrassing. I hope no one was – I don't think she even realised, but I went to go, hey, and pull myself up into a sitting position. But as I did, hey, I went, hey, and flipped off the side of the board <laughs> under the water and I was like, oh, it was so embarrassing. And so then I just thought I'll just paddle off to the left for a little while. So I stayed away from her. Then I came back and we kind of caught a similar wave, but she actually surfed it. And then mm. as I got up, I said, oh, that's a really cool board. And even as the word cool came out of my mouth, yeah. I was like, there's got to be a better word than cool at this point. Mm. But she was very pleasant. And she said, oh, yeah. And I said, what kind of board is it? And she said, what do you mean? And I'm like, oh, oh, oh no. Oh, no. It wasn't being, she wasn't <laughs> yeah. being rude. She was just like, oh, well, what do you mean? And I said, oh. Is it a beginner board? Oh, no. I was like, oh. I was like, <laughs> it's a yellow board. I don't even, that's what I said. I was like, what kind of boards are is there? Is it a rip curl? Oh, yeah. Is it a- yeah. I said, oh, what brand is it? And she goes, oh, well, look, it's made of fiberglass. And I said, and what have I got? And she goes, well, yours foam. is made of foam. I said, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And then she said, it's the same length as yours. So it's like a seven, six ah. or a six, seven or whatever it was. I'm not oh, cool. And she goes, and you know. Um, she was actually, you know, I only recently graduated from the board that you have to this one. And she said the board that you're on is really fun and you can learn heaps on it. And, um, you know, and she said, I just got this one secondhand in Torquay. And so she was very polite and That's kind made of it, and it was encouraging, but I just thought it took me so much effort to have that conversation. Yes. I was so scared of being yes. judged for not knowing what the board was and I actually mm. realised most of that's probably in my head. And then did yeah. you say how about Kelly Slater then? Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> it's a cowabunga and I paddled off. But yeah, it's this weird there's it, it, kind of something embarrassing about, I haven't been a beginner in something for a very long time Yes, and it does remind me of being a kid when you first turn up to, you know learning learning an instrument for the first yeah, time or, or a club. joining a new team. Yeah. And, um, can I just say, though, I don't think it really matters what you say because, <laughs> like, they just have to look at your pasty white skin and know <laughs> that you're not out there every morning, you know? I know. And obviously I have this giant surfboard that's yeah. from a renter shop. You know, you can tell I'm trying to learn to surf. Mm. When I got to the beach as well, the, the actual wetsuit that I'd hired I couldn't do up. 
And That's right. You had a bit of an existential crisis the first time you tried to get on a wetsuit. I did. And so, yeah. and then when this one I hired, I, I couldn't get it. I couldn't actually do it up because it wouldn't do up. And I went through this moment with Andrew and I were standing on the beach and he was like yanking this thing. <laughs> and in that moment, I thought there is, I've just outdone any possible coolness that I had here. Uh, and then he goes, no, nah, it's stuck. You, you're going to have oh, to go no. back to the shop. So then oh. I had to do the walk of shame in my wetsuit, like with a bikini on barefoot back to the surf shop and I was like I don't know if this is me or if it's your wetsuit but I can't get it up and then the guy in the store had to try and yank it the whole thing was like being a child with your mum and not being able to get your clothes on properly and he we he tried yanking it up for all it didn't work and as it turned out it was the wetsuit and not me so I did feel a lot better well, about that situation. I feel like there's a certain irony too that you're, you know, when you're going in there f- to hire the board, you're worried about trying to impress the surf shop because I feel like they'd be the le- the person who would care the least. Mm. Do you, you think know? so? Yeah, because I see everyone coming in. Don't you reckon they'd be dealing with beginners all the time? And also, I feel like when you're in that position and you really know the sport and all the people, you just don't care. Yeah, you probably don't, do yeah, you? Maybe. I think it's just in my head because surfing culture, right? You, know, you see all these films and yes. everything around it just seems so... Yeah. Cool. cool. Yeah. Do you know my wetsuit um, is just one of those, um, it doesn't have a zip on it. So oh. just. Oh. Yeah. What do you mean it doesn't have a zip? How well, do you get into it? Oh, very. <laughs> oh, man. Has it got a chest zip? Yeah, it's got a chest zip just oh, across yeah. the top. So it's just kind of a big opening. But you just. Oh, man. It, I have to get Kat to help me every time. I don't know how how I would do it otherwise unless someone else was there to help me get in and out of it. That makes me feel better about myself if you're yeah. saying that because that's how I feel. But you've been sur- – I mean, you've got a surfboard. How did you feel like that? Oh, mate, my surfboard is a um, a phone. It's like – it's a phone one but small. So oh. it's okay. – I, I can barely lay on it. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I think Kath was like, oh, I think I should have got you. I, You know, it's probably better used as a boogie board, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but I, yeah. So I've never even been able to catch a wave on it. Do you know oh. what I mean? I just kind you, of. Oh, okay. I just paddle out and then um, just kind of have waves kind of go over the top <laughs> of me and stuff. <laughs> and then I, you know, swim back in and go, oh. Oh, that was a great surf. <laughs> Thankfully, no one's around to see me, so it's all right. Hey, I just, we got a nice message too. It's um, Kate from Radio Marinara said that um, the best surfer is the one having the most fun. Oh, that's you, that's mate. That's good advice. R, R, R. Uh, we are almost on holidays. <laughs> I mean, it does fit. It, it feels totally a little. Totally feels like that. Yeah, because public holiday tomorrow, Good Friday, and then um, we get Easter Monday off. I can't tell and then you. Then Anzac Day next week. Yes. I can't tell you. The timing on this is astounding for, for me. you. Yeah. Yeah. Like it is, um, you know, because it, it coincides with the end of the comedy festival, um, and they have um, like a big. Uh, closing night party at the festival, which I, you know, quite happily have been content to stay at home in the last, you know, few years doing this job. You know, it was just like, I don't need to go to the closing night party. I've had a great time. I have a few drinks on the Saturday night and then I'll just be happy. Because I used to not even do a show on a Sunday was, you know, 
I don't think I'd leave the house on Sunday and just kind of relax and watch a bit of TV. Yeah, Not this year, though. Not this year because I'm going to party. No, no, no. You've got to do the show because I'm going to come and see it. He's going to do three shows. I'm going to do three shows on Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) Damn straight. Put on a show. I'm going to be there. Yeah, and I'm also you have to go to the opening night party because you might win an award. Oh, closing night party. Well, yeah, well, the awards ceremony is happening on Saturday afternoon. I was chatting to Edo um, last night about it, um, trying to plan how she's, you know, plan how we're going to go through our day. So, like, because you know, awards are in the afternoon, yeah, and then um, there's like a, a party that night, and it's like, when do we drink? How do oh, yeah, we? Because you've got to do your show after the awards. Yeah, I've got to do my show. Like my show's at seven. Unfortunately, Edo's is like at nine forty-five, oh, so no. she's got a, like a big wait. Um, and I oh, and then I've, and I've also yeah got Quando as well. The play, so award ceremony, then straight to the play, then straight to my show. Oh mate! But then I'm then I'm you know relaxing for the rest of the night. That's you know then I can go and party. I you know by eight o'clock I'm clocked off. Yep. No problem. Um, anyway, what are you guys doing for Easter? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, we're just talking about your weekend. Uh, I don't have any plans, actually, like a little plan. This is kind of a nice... Are you going to go to Stations of the Cross Easter? tomorrow? Oh, my God, no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I love Easter. Yeah, I love don't, Easter. Don't just for the, about Stations of the Cross. <laughs> just for the chance to remind everyone that uh, as a... As a growing up a Catholic, oh, mm. we used to have to go to Stations of the Cross on Fridays, which would involve on Good Friday, sorry, which would involve uh, a group of people from the parish at the local oval walking from station to station, being enacted by children, and mm. each station is a step in the path of Jesus being crucified. Yeah, so you're basically <laughs> perfectly normal, out, perfectly normal, <laughs> acting out torture and execution yes. with children. Yes, yes, and I was right. very excited when I got cast as Judas one year. What did you? Yeah. Do you oh, get you s- would have been a great Judas. Judas. I was a good Judas. I always play the bad guys best. Mm. Do you get to say anything? Uh, what do you do? Oh, were there, were there words? I can't remember. Yeah, oh, no, oh, I can't remember if there was words. I think maybe you just had to freeze like a picture. Yeah. Oh, as people come around on, to you. Yeah. yeah. Depends how you That's do really it. Weird. I can't remember though. It depends. Yeah, I think it's because there's a whole story. Sometimes you don't you don't have to do it on an oval. <laughs> yeah, we just did it on an oval. Not, not very atmospheric. No, <laughs> it's just you know sometimes it's good to you know get up and walk about. Local footy team training at one hand, <laughs> stations across at <laughs> the other. Um, no, but sometimes you you would just do. Was it on? When did would you you have to go to mass at like you know you remember you'd go at three o'clock. Oh, that's when Jesus that's died. When Jesus died. So that would be Good Friday. Yeah, so three got, o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah that's when oh, Jesus, Jesus died. died. Do you know that? I, I did mm. not know that. <laughs> and he was thirty-three. Oh, he died. Oh, that's why he comes the third, together. The third. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's 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 very very that But um, yeah, but it was also there was a long mass on the Good Friday mass, the one that three o'clock one. Yeah, I used to love Easter, but I do remember thinking, why is there so much church? Whereas Christmas came with only the one, exactly the one right? church. Whereas Easter was like, so, the, like you have to go on Friday, Sunday. yes, and you have to go Shrove. Um, no, that's Shrove yeah, but that's the start of <laughs> yeah. it. It starts at Shrove Tuesday, and then it goes all the way, and then it's like, yeah, you have to go to mass on Friday, and it's a long, you know. Yeah, I've heard this story. What else you got? And then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tell something story. Yeah. Wanted to end differently. This. Yeah. Sorry. Can, can we just go back to the, 
to the yeah. stations of the cross on the oval. <laughs> yeah. So how, I'm just trying to get my head around how this works. So well, you're all at different parts of the oval, no, so and then the priest is walking around so with a um, tour group. There'd be yeah, so there'd be a massive group of <laughs> the two parishioners yeah. who'd be, and the priest would stand at the front of that with uh, someone holding a cross, like mm. a up in the air, like a like a cross on a stick, and, and uh, what, you, like a sing? tour group. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, like and you'd just be waiting there at one point on the oval for him to get round. And so to you. there'd be a station set up around each oval. Yeah, and you, you'd walk between each station singing. Something like Jesus, remember, remember me when I come into your kingdom. Anyway, one of those. <laughs> yeah. And everyone would sing that and then you'd stop at the station and the kids would act out a. And thing. did you have a little stage or anything at the station? No. no. Just you're on the footy oval. Just no the stages oval. there. Okay. And then what? So they get round to you and you'd and sort then of then pop re- out. Then they'd read out the station, yeah, like a diorama. And then <laughs> this, then this, they'd read out the, that station, like whatever happened at that point. Yeah. And so you'd so say, was- take him. Okay, so yes. the, like the stations. <laughs> You're are, gonna have Jesus. I don't want him. Uh, my, my really hammed up evil Judas was pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Barabbas makes an appearance. Yeah, if Barabbas you want. is there. Yeah, because uh, you know it starts with. Um, <laughs> oh, we get Bar- I know we've been talking about Barabbas constantly. Barabbas for two weeks. was a. Who was he? Barabbas was, Barabbas was a prisoner that got freed instead of Jesus. Oh. Yeah. And does he get to run off across the oval? Yeah, Barabbas goes on free. <laughs> I'm out of here. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, someone's... Barabbas so, would be played by someone's pet dog and then they just... Run free, <laughs> run free little Barabbas. <laughs> He's not coming back, is he? <sighs> anyway. Well, that's what you should well, do. That's what we're doing <laughs> Just stood out. 102.7 Triple R. Time for Feature Creatures here on Breakfasts, and this week we're joined once again by Ricky Lee Erickson from the museum. Good morning. Good morning. Very excited to talk to you about everybody's favourite topic, sharks. Yes, my favourite too. And I thought I'd pick um, an interesting shark this month because actually in the last few weeks we've been working on one of these at the museum. <gasps> really? Yeah. Whoa. So um, talking about basking sharks today these are super rare massive monster sharks they can be up to 12 meters long but the one that we have at the museum now is about um, six and a half meters long so it's not so big it's a smaller male Um, but basically this shark was donated to the museum back in 2015 it was caught by a commercial um, fisher off the coast of portland and they recognized the significance of this shark and um sort of called up the museum and said hey we've got this massive basking shark um and that was a great opportunity for us because they're just super rare and we don't get samples of them very often so this um shark has been sitting in formaldehyde so formalin for the last uh couple of years fixing so it, it basically um preserves all of its tissues and everything so that it can be used for hopefully hundreds more years as a specimen. Um, but last week we took it out of the formula and we put it in our tank upstairs in our collections in ethanol. And that was the first time I'd saw it because I hadn't seen it um, back. I wasn't there back in 2015. So it was a really cool moment for me because I love these sharks. And so I thought this is a good opportunity to learn more about them and talk about them here on the radio. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so definitely. These, these sharks, these are almost like they've got huge mouths, yeah? That's correct. So they kind of have the same strategy as sort of like a, a blue whale in, in that they're fi- filter feeders. So they are really slow moving. They're really, really big. Um, And they have this huge mouth that's um, kind of, their their gills are sort of, 
extend from the top of their head all the way to the bottom. And in these gills, they've got these gill arches, uh, gill rakers, sorry, which are bony or like cartilaginous structures that project out from the gills and they prevent food from exiting. So basically the water comes into their mouth. These gill rakers stop anything yummy from getting back out and then they eat that and basically they can just um, swim swim through life and just oh, just sort of sieving everything into their mouth exactly in. so like you on your way home from the <laughs> pub jeff <laughs> so do they eat well, what kind of things do they eat then so it's uh like zooplankton so small microscopic things small fish crustaceans larvae that sort of thing and they 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 are known to follow algal um, zooplankton bloom so they'll go and follow where there's big upwelling big nutrients and there's lots of there's lots of things happening and they also dive down so they're called basking sharks because they're thought to be bask at the surface to warm up after they've been down really deep they can get down to a thousand meters and then they so they go down follow try to find things and come back up bask in the sun for a bit and then repeat that we're not really sure well they we do think they're migratory and that they follow the food um and they really prefer temperate like cool waters but they are known to have been sighted in like subtropical regions as well and they're particularly rare in the southern hemisphere they're more common northern hemisphere um so when we do find them down here it's quite interesting because they yeah we just don't see them that often yeah uh has um has they ever eaten a a human no (laughs) don't think they're equipped for that they've got the tiniest little teeth i think they've probably got similar sized teeth but they do have lots of them but they're more for grinding things up and and yeah so they they are very um, passive. I mean, there's been reports of people, you know, touching them oh, and stuff, which I wouldn't nice, recommend to do. They're like the nice sharks. Yeah, they are. They're friendly. Like they, they're scary. That's scary looking though. They're they're pretty. Um, I'd recommend going and having a look at them. But you Google it. They are they, huge. They just sound a bit almost more like whales than sharks. They yeah. So they do have that. It's it's interesting because yeah they that different animals of different evolutionary lineages form the same strategy there you'd kind of think of them maybe like a whale shark which is the mm. other sort of the tropical version of the basking shark um but actually those two are completely separate as well they um evolve from two different li- whale sharks are more like wobbegong sharks which yep. are those little sort of um whiskery type sharks that you see you know in victoria we've got them um and then whale sharks actually um basking sharks sorry are more related to great white sharks so actually some people see when they've got their mouth closed they look more like a really big great white shark oh yeah they kind of do i was just looking at a photo of them from yeah. the top of the water especially looking down exactly and so that's why we're not sure especially some reports of big great white sharks from the air um could be potentially basking sharks so um but yeah obviously very different um feeding strategies yeah. and everything like that so you if you saw a basking shark i'd be wrapped but if i saw a great white i'd be running in the opposite swimming in the opposite direction I, mean, <laughs> I hate to ask this but i always feel like we have to are they endangered yeah so they're of course they're of course they're. yeah <laughs> sorry to break it no they're not endangered they're listed as vulnerable on the iuc and red list so um for example in Australia, their site is listed so you, you can't bring them into australia or you can't um like you can't trade it um but it is you know shark fin soup so it is hunted in lots of parts of asia um back in the day like there's lots of history of historical hunting so they they have really oily livers and that was used for lantern oil um so they were hunted quite a bit but in australia it's not so much a thing because we just don't have them that much here but certainly in um in the northern hemisphere yeah they they are hunted what are they like socially so do they hang out individually or do they hang out in packs 
I think they're, it's hard to, again, it's, we don't know too much about them, but they're usually solitary and they do come together in um, shoals every now and again and they have been seen to sort of circle each other's tails and that sort of thing and I think that's courtship behaviour um, and they do congregate together if there's a big sort of plankton bloom or something like that going on where they all feed together. But it sounds like they're more solitary mm. animals. Um, they they kind of follow that sort of same pattern of, of yeah, being, I think, alone if you're filter feeder is you know the best way to go um yeah this is probably a stupid question but why don't we know more about them given they're 12 meters long like you think that they'd be fairly easy to study i mean once yeah. you see one you just follow it as it swims along yeah i think there's just i mean there's just that not, not that many records or sightings of them they do they have tracked them before like have put tags on them and that sort of thing but um yeah we just I mean, they're in the deep sea a lot of the time and this is the case with a lot of deep sea animals is that we don't see them very often. Um, there are people working on them, for sure. Um, we Some of the tissues that we collected from our basking shark have been sent off to researchers in Tasmania and they're looking at the populations in southern hemisphere, whether they differ from that genetically from the northern hemisphere mm. to see whether they're different or whether they're there is that genetic flow between the two. Are they crossing the equator? Are they going north to south? Or are they kind of staying in their own in their own section? So there are people looking at them, but it's just that thing of we just don't see them that often. And, and when we do now, obviously, well, some people might sell them to for food and that sort of thing. So it's... so. The, the guy that actually gave it to the museum here was really highly praised because he could have potentially done that, but he did the right thing and, and took it to the museum, and it's such a valuable... The last time we had a specimen of a basking shark in Victoria was in 1883. Oh. So, um, yeah, What have you, cool. you learned about them in having it at the museum? We just took st- sort of standard measurements, but the main thing is that it's there for if someone wants to look at it it's here and it's here forever so we have tissues in the um, our dna biobank which are kept at minus 180 degrees and liquid nitrogen um they're going to be there for a very long time we've got masses of muscle and liver and all that sort of thing and then we've got we've got their fins um we've got the head up until the gills at the back so it's we're not we're, as collection managers and, and researchers, we're not always focused on every single animal that we've got at the museum. We're focused on building a collection for research so that it's a resource there for others to use in the future. And certainly um, Di Bray and uh, Martin Goman, who are the um, ichthyology people, my bosses, <laughs> they, um, they do a lot of work on Fishes of Australia online and they've got this massive paragraph. So if you're interested in learning more about basking sharks, that's a really good resource to use as well. Uh, is it on display yet to the public? <coughs> no, it's it's not on display, but they have done a CT scan of the head and they were looking at doing a, um, a, a 3D model, model oh, which cool. would be to scale. Because you can't really... I mean, you could display a wet spirit specimen, but it's hard. It's harder logistically because you have to have them in, in ethanol or a spirit or something yeah. like that, and it's just a bit more... It's, there's a little bit more to it than just putting a, a bird mount on display or something like that. So we'll probably be looking at doing a model of some sort in the future maybe. Yeah, that would be pretty cool though. Hmm, fascinating. Thank you so much, Ricky Lee Erickson. It's been a pleasure. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. See you next time. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.